Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, The Book of Judges. In this series, we'll walk through the Book of Judges and let it shine a light into the muddy waters of human rebellion. These stories are some of the most bizarre and interesting stories found anywhere. They're not just historical curiosities, they are glimpses of humanity as applicable today as they were back then. Stories reveal a God working above and through the chaos to bring redemption. We hope you find this podcast meaningful. We'd love to hear how God is touching people's lives. Just go to our website at www.valleybrook.cc, select Contact Us, and send us an email. Amen. Well, good morning, church. At this time, I want to release the kids up through uh, grade 8 to head to their Sunday school classes. So the American Psychiatric Association defines a phobia as something that causes stress, so much stress that it interrupts normal life function. So phobia is something that causes such stress that it interrupts normal life functions. So there are some common phobias that many of us are familiar with that maybe some of you in this room, including myself, even might have. I want to go through some of them just for for a little fun this morning. Let's have a little quiz. So acrophobia. Who here knows what acrophobia is? Any idea? You cheated. You were here first service, Pastor Clark. (laughs) Acrophobia, fear of heights. Not to be confused with arachnophobia, which is fear of spiders, which is a a fear that I have. I think it's a very logical fear because spiders are terrifying things. Uh, Then there's claustrophobia, fear of confined or crowded spaces. Now, I want to be honest. For me, I thought claustrophobia was like kind of this, this fake thing. My wife, Lisa, she, I asked her for permission to share the story, but she's claustrophobic. And so she always would talk about it, you know, especially when we were dating. And I just thought she was just being overly dramatic. And I remember we were at Simsbury High School. This was a couple years ago. We were married. And we went to see, you know, one of our students here at Valleybrook. They were in a play. And the play released, and all, what, 750, 800 people from the Simsbury High School play flooded into the lobby of Simsbury High School, which, if you know, is not very big. And so my wife, she's, she's a little lady, she's very short, and so we walk out, and she immediately starts to panic. And I, not like drama, like, oh, I'm ner-, like, panic. I saw it in her face. She just turned white. She started to shake. She started to panic. And so I said, I will save you, honey. And so I said, grab on. And no joke, I, gr- I grabbed my little wife, and I grabbed her by the hand, and I just bulldozed through all these poor, a bunch of them were older too, but bulldozed through, sorry, sorry, sorry. I had to be the hero that saved the day. But so claustrophobia is real, just in case you're wondering. Nomophobia, this is a new one in our culture today. This is an interesting one. Nomophobia is the fear of being without a mobile device. It's real. I'm not making these up. These are real phobias. Fear of being without a mobile device. It's actually seen, uh, J.D. Greer you know, was speaking on this, this topic, and he said that 50% of people that were surveyed say that they experience extreme anxiety when they're not with or around their mobile device. And it's easy to judge that, but I know that this is real because... When you don't have your phone with you, right, our, our, a lot of our lives revolve around our phone. Maybe it's because of work. Maybe you're a parent and your, your kids are, you know, away or whatever. I don't have my phone on me right now and I feel a little naked. But, you know, you know it's, it's bad because when you don't have your phone on you, you still feel it vibrate in your pocket. Who has ever had that? They're called phantom rings. Erica, you're looking at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. You're lying. It, it, they're phantom rings. We're like, I've literally been walking around, no phone in my pocket, and I'm like feeling it and going to check for it because I feel like somebody's texting me. Nomophobia, 
All right, trypanophobia, fear of needles. Again, I think a pretty justified. I don't know who, somebody who like loves needles. That'd be weird. Uh, thanatophobia, fear of death. Glossophobia, fear of public speaking. You know that when people are asked what they're more afraid of when they rank their fears, people are actually more afraid of public speaking than they are of dying. It's pretty, pretty amazing. So, so those are some common fears, but then there are a lot of less common fears that you know, are kind of really interesting. Maybe some of you, you know, lived through the days of the Maury show when you experienced some of these fears in some of the Maury shows, like the woman who ate... Um, or she had, was afraid of, um, what was it, mothballs? Not mothballs, cotton balls. And they brought out cotton, it was like horrible. They bring out these cotton balls and this lady just like freaks out on the show. So here's a couple, you know, less common fears. Uh, onoma, onomatophobia, onomatophobia. It's a fear of names. Fear of names, I don't know. I don't know how that works, but it's there. Uh, poganophobia, my wife does not have this fear because this is the fear of beards. The fear of beards. It's a real thing, I promise. This is funny. Uh, tocophobia, fear of pregnant women. If your wife has been pregnant, maybe men, you might have had this fear at some point in your life. Octophobia, fear of the number eight, which should be interesting. You can put the next one up because, okay, so it's hippopotomanastrosequipedaliophobia. It's not fear of hippopotamuses. It's not. It's the fear of long words. It's real. I'm not, I didn't make this up. This is real. And the last one's my favorite. My favorite. Phobophobia. It is the fear of having a phobia. It's like a cycle. <laughs> but there's this saying that it, just in life, in the business world, leadership world, that your success in life is directly related to how well you manage your fears. Your success in life is directly related to how well you manage your fears. And C.S. Lewis has this great thought, and it's kind of more relevant to the Christian life in the same vein. He says, courage is the least talked about of all Christian virtues, but it is absolutely essential to all the others because you cannot persevere in any of the other virtues without courage. So let me ask you a question this morning, church. How many of you here today have felt God calling you to do something, have felt God challenging you to step out in faith. Maybe you felt God pushing you out of your comfort zone or asking you to follow him and take a risk or make a sacrifice. How many of you have felt God leading you into the unknown place of trusting him, but you didn't listen or obey because of fear? Maybe you were afraid for, I think, logical reasons. Maybe you didn't feel qualified or you didn't feel ready or you didn't know how it would work out, or you struggled in trusting God's provision or protection. Maybe you just didn't simply feel equipped. But if we were really honest with ourselves, we would see how easy it is to let fear keep us from living in the fullness of life that God has designed us to live in. How different would our lives look? Would our church look? Would this region look? Would our families look? Would your walk with Christ look? if we exchanged our fear for courage. So this morning we're going to look at a story that comes out of Judges 6, and we will see the origin of true courage, the origin of true godly biblical courage. We're going to see how to develop this courage, and then we're also going to see how to maintain this courage in our Christian life day to day. This is the fourth week of our series going through the book of Judges, and it's going to be a good one. But before we go on, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that 
you are moving in our midst. Father, we thank you for the truth of even those songs that we just sang, those declarations, those truths from your word that we declared to you. That you are good, that you are worthy, that you have made a way, that you pursue us, that you love us, that you've called us. And Father, we ask that you would open up our hearts to hear your word this, made, this morning in a new way that your word would be living inside of each one of us. Holy Spirit, we invite you in this place. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So if you haven't been here for a while, or if this is your first time here, number one, welcome. But also, I want to just give you a little recap. Over the last few weeks, we've been in a series called The Book of Judges. And we've gone through, up to today, Judges chapter 1 through Judges chapter 5. And we've seen some truly epic, some truly violent, some really weird stories throughout the book of Judges. This is the fourth week of our series in the book of Judges, and we're going to look this week about God's faithfulness to his people. See, chapters 1 through 5 challenge us to trust in the faithfulness of God, but also reminded us how important it is to walk in total obedience to God. See, the Israelites really struggled with this because they would pursue partial obedience, but we saw in Judges 1 through 5 God calling his people to walk in total obedience to God. But this morning we'll see God's faithfulness to his people once again, but this time through an unexpected man. Let's turn this morning to Judges chapter 6, verse 1. And so just to remember, we're coming right off of this last judge. Her name was Deborah. She was like this hardcore, mighty, amazing, strong female judge who all these people followed, and she delivered the people of Israel out of captivity. And this is an epic story, and now Deborah has passed away. Deborah has died, and this is where the story picks up. Judges 6, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord again. And for seven years he gave them into the hand of the Midianites. Because, of the, uh, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. Neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkey. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. So yet again, we see the Israelites being oppressed, but this time by the Midianites. And they took everything. The Bible said that they ravaged the land of the Israelites. They not only took the food, but they took the methods to make the food. And they forced the Israelites up into shelters in the mountains, and they forced the Israelites to live in fear. They took everything. Verse 6 says, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. So let's pause here for a moment. See, we're in the same cycle that we've been in before. We've seen this time and time again. You know, the Israelites, they disobey God. They're, they're oppressed. God gives them, you know, over to the hands of their enemies. They're, they get to their wit's end. They've had enough, and they cry out to God. See, they hit rock bottom, and they cry out for deliverance. But this time, God does something different initially. 
See, in the pr- previous you know, chapters of Judges, we see that God just sends a judge, and that judge, they follow the judge, and all these things happen. But this time, the initial response of the Lord looks a little different. Instead of sending a judge right away, he sends a prophet. See, this would be like you calling 911 for an allergic reaction. Instead of the hospital sending you an ambulance, they would send you a pamphlet on how to better re- read food allergy labels so it didn't happen again. See, this was not the response that the Israelites were looking for or asking or seeking from God. They wanted God to deliver them, not to convict them or expose their sin. See, God knew, though. Don't miss it, church. God knew that Israel's foundational problem wasn't the Midianites. It wasn't the oppression. It was themselves. Yes, the Israelites did need deliverance from the Midianite captivity. But God knew the most important thing that they needed deliverance from was their foolish, sinful, and ungodly ways. They were their own biggest enemy. So he sent a prophet. You know, in essence, God sent a sermon when they asked for a savior. You know, how many of us this morning could identify with this in one way or another? You know, I know that all of us or many of us this morning come to church on Sunday morning because we're seeking something from God. We're seeking wisdom, maybe, or we're seeking provision, or we're seeking answers or direction or comfort, or maybe even deliverance out of a situation of pain and suffering. But maybe, just maybe, God, what God wants to do first is take our attention off those areas we are seeking and focus it on the condition of our hearts. See, a lot of times we come seeking things that we need, that we want, that that might not even be bad things that we want deliverance out of, but maybe this morning God's saying, hey, before we get there, I want to shine the light on your heart this morning. Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. See, God can send a trouble into your life, into my life, not as payback for sin. You know, God's not a mean God. It's out of his, that would be out of his character. Not as a payback for sin, but to bring us back from our sin. Now, my disclaimer is this. Not every bad situation, not every situation of pain or brokenness that you experience is God sending that into your life to teach you something. I don't think that that would be within the realm of God's good character. That every time someone was diagnosed with cancer, God made them have that cancer to teach them something. I do not think that that is, what, that is the character of God. But what I do know is that, number one, God gets glorified through everything. God will use every situation to work it out for his good and his glory and your good. But God also can send trouble into our lives, not as a punishment, but to teach us. See, maybe you're at the place this morning where you desperately need something from God, but God wants to turn the spotlight on your heart to show you the areas that you need to begin to give back to him. He sent a sermon before salvation. Let's continue in verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah (laughs) that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite. You didn't know that Oprah was in the Bible, but right there. Now, it's important to stop here for a moment, though. So we see God sends the the prophet, the the message is given, the sermon is given, the conviction is given, but then right away the angel is sent. See, something significant happens here that we could glaze over it and miss. What happened to the sermon? Where do we see in the Bible the response of the people? We don't see the prophet come and all the people being like, oh, we know God, we're so sorry. And they didn't have this intense worship service where they came to the altar crying and the prayer team prayed over them. Like, that's not what happened. We didn't see repentance. No, see, this is the beautiful thing that we see here right in the story. God began the deliverance process before they ever responded to the sermon. Did you catch it? God began the deliverance process before they even 
responded to the sermon. God interrupted the sermon with deliverance. We don't see a response because God didn't wait for one. This is the key, church, this morning to understanding the heart of God, not just in this story, but in the salvation narrative that we see woven throughout the Old and New Testament and Scripture. It's the heart behind Romans 5.8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while you were still a sinner, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for us. Not when we figured it out and we repented and we got our ducks in a row. No, no, no. While we were still sinners, while we were in our rebellion, Christ died for us in the midst of our mess, in the midst of our sin. See, it's key to notice here that God doesn't wait for us to fix ourselves. He doesn't wait for the Israelites to fix themselves, to get our act together. Instead, before they even responded, before we even respond, God has already started the salvation process. Pastor J.D. Greer, who has been you know, awesome in, in studying this book of, of uh, Judges, and a lot of you are going through his curriculum in our small groups, our life groups, he says this. He says, God might have a sermon for you this weekend, but he has already provided the substance for your deliverance. See, God didn't wait for the Israelites to respond to the sermon before he sent the salvation, which we see here in verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah, um, that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So this is important. So we see, prophet came, people didn't respond yet, God sent an angel, and he comes to Gideon. And what is Gideon doing? He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Why is that detail important? Why did God include that in Scripture? Well, I believe it was this. It was showing us the type of man that Gideon was. See, back in the day to thresh wheat, basically people would take this big basket, they would put the wheat in the basket, they would go outside, and when the wind blew, they would throw the wheat from the basket up into the air, and the wind would carry away the stuff that they didn't want, which was the light stuff called the chaff. It would carry it away, and everything that would come down would fall into the basket would be the stuff that they wanted. The problem with threshing wheat in a wine press is that the wine press was Underground. It was in like this cave divot underground. There wasn't wind in a wine press. It kind of was a silly situation. It showed that Gideon was so afraid that he was threshing wheat in a wine press. Gideon was so cowardly that he was threshing wheat in a wine press. He didn't look like our expected hero. He didn't have this Chuck Norris vibe to him. No, Gideon was this coward bending over in a, in a wine press doing something that really didn't make a lot of sense. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down. I read that already. Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Or as some translations say, and this is what I'm going to use this morning, oh mighty man of valor. So the angel comes to Gideon in this cowardly moment, in this moment full of fear, and the angel says, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor, you mighty warrior. See, in any other situation, this would seem like someone's getting mocked, right? I mean, because the situation, Gideon was not being a mighty warrior. He was not being a man of valor. He was being a coward. It was ironic. He's literally hiding in a hole, he wasn't brave. He wasn't courageous. But this is key here. 
God is not describing Gideon as how he is, but instead, God is speaking truth through this angel of his truth and identity and destiny. God is speaking his identity and destiny into Gideon's life by describing not who he is, but who he will be. Don't miss it. He's not describing who Gideon currently is, but he's describing who God will make him be. Almighty man of valor. See, God doesn't see us for the mess that we are. If we have a saving faith in Jesus Christ, God sees us for what we are made in Christ. God is declaring destiny and identity over Gideon just as he does for you and I. Almighty man of valor. Verse 13 goes on and says, Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has this all happened to us? Speaking of his people, the Israelites. Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. See, we know from this outside perspective, we know that God didn't abandon his people. We know that God didn't just walk away from the Israelites, but instead the Israelites walked away from God. Let's keep moving and see how the angel responds. The angel responds in verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in strength. You ha- Go in strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? See, Gideon asked God, God, where are your wonderful deeds? And he's referring to the history of God's chosen people. That God, you know, and Gideon would have been, been taught this history. That God rescued the people out of Egypt doing miraculous things. That God took care of his people in the wilderness for 40 years in miraculous ways. You know, that God, you know, split the Jordan. That, that God, you know, all these different things happen. And he said, God, where are your miraculous deeds now? I'm hiding in a wine press. <laughs> They've taken everything. God, where are you? Where are your deeds? And God responds by saying, am I not sending you? I'm going to do them through you, Gideon. Again, we can find ourselves in Gideon all throughout this story. We do this a lot, don't we? We ask God such a similar question. We look at our culture, our world, our town, our families, our relationship, our government, and it's, it's all falling apart, and it's so easy to say, God, where are you? God, where are your deeds? God, everything's falling apart. God, where are you? When God is saying, am I not sending you? Verse 15, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? It's very polite. Pardon me, Lord. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Like, I'm literally the the poorest of the poor, the least of the least. The Lord answered, I will be with you. Pause. That's the most important line in this whole chapter. I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I've come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. So I'm going to summarize this section. So this is kind of Gideon's first test. So, you know, the angel says, hey, go prepare food. So Gideon goes and prepares food. He brings it to the angel. He puts it on the table. The angel takes a staff. He hits the food. The food lights on fire. And the angel disappeared. And Gideon's like, okay. Now I believe. I'm convinced for the moment. You know, like this happens. He's convinced. The angel appears to Gideon again and instructs him. Now to destroy the idols that his father had built to worship Baal. 
So, so the angel had convinced Gideon through this miraculous work. He comes back and he says, now Gideon, it's time for you. Before you're going to do this, it's time for you to go take down the idol to the, 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 the God bow that these people worship. This idol that you've made, your father has actually built, which is significant. Go and take down that idol and build one for me. So it says, so Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was afraid of his family and of the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. Yet again, we see Gideon operating out of fear, but he was obedient. The next morning, we see people, the people woke up in the town. They saw that, you know, the idol of the bell was torn down and something was, you know, different was built. They had this big investigation. They found out that it was Gideon and they said, hey, Gideon's dad, you need to bring Gideon out because we want him to pay for this with his life. We see this response in 31. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd, hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you going to try to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerob Baal that day, meaning let Baal contend with him. So we see this story. So Gideon kind of like gets out of this situation. His dad helps him out. It was really clever. And so now we see in this story the, the Midianites and the Amalekites and a bunch of other forces were now gathering together and they were launching this massive strike against Israel. So up to this point, they've been wiping them out, you know, by taking their food and their supplies. They're launching this massive strike against Israel. And we see the angel appear to get again to Gideon and instruct him to lead a resistance again this, against this massive assault. The angel tells Gideon he will use him to deliver his people from the hands of their oppressors. So then Gideon, like we have seen all throughout this story, asks another interesting question. 36, Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wolf fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all around the ground is dry, then I will know that you will, sa you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece, wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. So Gideon's like, oh, you know what, God? I, that was cool, but I, I, I forgot. I, I meant to have you do it the other way. So Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. But let me just make one more request. Allow me to take one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground, be cover, or ground around it be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and the ground was covered with dew. We're going to get to this in a second, but the fleece test is probably one of the most misunderstood and wrongly applied scriptures in all of the Bible. So there it is, the calling of Gideon, Judges chapter 6. So this is where I want to land today. What can we learn about courage and calling from this story? What can we learn about courage and calling from this story of Gideon? The first thing is this, God doesn't call the brave, he makes brave the called. See, God doesn't start with what you are. He starts with what he intends to make you in Christ. You know, God took a man cowering in a hole, like afraid for his life, and he made him stand up and he said, oh, you mighty man of valor. Another instance we see of this, we see it all throughout scripture in the Old Testament. You know, we see Abraham. Abraham was this old man in his 80s. You know, his wife was old as well. They had no kids. They were sterile. They tried and they couldn't. And they were discouraged about it. And then God came to Abraham and said, you will be the father to many nations, which was laughable. That's why his wife laughed at it. 
But then we see as the, as the story goes on that Abraham did have children. And he was the father to many nations. And we see that God describing Abraham as a man of faith. He believed what God said. He had faith in the yet to come and trusted that God's promises were good. See, we need not to believe what things are, but what God has called them to be. So you see this contrast so clearly with how Satan speaks to us versus how God speaks to us pertaining to our identity. See, Satan starts, the lies of Satan start with who you are and what you have done, and that's how he defines you. Who you are, what you have done, and that's how he defines you. And these are not necessarily all untrue things, but this is what Satan uses to define your character and your destiny. It might be for you, he might be saying you're an addict, or you're a cheater, or you're worthless, or you're a mess, or you're too far gone, or you're a liar, or you're ugly, or you'll amount to nothing, you aren't smart enough, you are nothing. But God, but God comes to you and speaks a louder word, a word of true identity and destiny. God says you're redeemed. You are my creation. You are a saint. You are righteous. You are my beloved. You are made in my image. You are a mighty man or woman of valor. Pastor J.D. Greer talks about this in a great way, or talks about a great way that you can tell the difference between Satan's voice and the Holy Spirit's voice. See, Satan's voice starts with who you are, what you've done. He beats you up for it, and then he defines you by it. But the Holy Spirit, he will point out your sin. That's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is to convict sin. But he will start with a declaration of what he is making you in Christ, and he will grow you up into that. He won't say, oh, all these things that you have done. He said, no, no, that's not who you are. This is who you are. Let's, let's become that person. Satan reminds us of our inadequacies, but the Holy Spirit will start by declaring what God has made you to be in Christ. See, I had a realization of, of the truth of this, you know, being a dad with my daughter. It was about a year ago, my daughter Grace was just having one of those days. You, you parents know those days. My daughter's five, or she's six now, she was five at the time, and she is a spunky, like energetic, awesome girl. But with that comes, you know, a pretty big swing of emotions. My daughter is me. It, it, it was, my mom says it's payback, but it's fine. But I remember we, had one, we just had a really tough day one day. You know, parents know it. It's like just every once in a while there's this, this, just this day where it seems like the moon is out of alignment. Something's going on in the world and your kids just become evil. And so I remember all throughout the day it was just a battle. Breakdown after breakdown. Tears after meltdown. I remember one of the meltdowns was in the stop and shop in Granby, which is, is a difficult, as a parent you know that that's a hard thing when your child freaks out, especially when your child's old enough to like run away from you. That makes it even more difficult. You know, yelling and stomping, a whole lot of no's, and it kind of, it led to Grace being punished. You know, we, we were punished her, we showed her the consequences for her actions, we took away some toys, we made her sit in a room, all these different things, but nothing seemed to work. And I remember after just this long day, I remember putting Grace to bed and I sat next to her in bed and, and she looked at me and I remember this just like it was yesterday. You know, you, she was drained, I was drained, Lisa was drained. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, Daddy, I can't ever do anything right. Daddy, I can't do, I can't ever do anything right. Now I know that she was being dramatic. My daughter is very dramatic. But in that moment, I felt the Holy Spirit was speaking to me specifically about how I needed to parent my daughter. See, the whole day was 
spent correcting bad behavior and pointing out the ways that she had disobeyed, and I have no apologies for that. That was the right way. We believe that that was the right way to parent. But in this special moment with my daughter, I needed to tell her who she was. So I sat with my daughter, and I looked her in the eyes, and I told her that she was created by God, that she was special and unique, that God made her in her mommy's belly, that he loves her, and that no matter what she does, her earthly daddy loves her too. I told her that even though she wasn't acting this way in the moment, I told her, honey, you are a respectful, loving, caring girl. Not because that's how you've been today, but because that's how I know God wants you to be. And he's entrusted mommy and I to help you get there. See, by speaking these things to her and over her, by speaking truth and identity and life over her, I was declaring to my five-year-old daughter her identity as a woman of God. I was calling her a higher. See, this is exactly what God does for each of us. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the call. He doesn't call the courageous. He makes the courageous the called. See, God wants our faithful obedience in him to step out into the unknown so then he can show us how faithful he is. He can show us what he can do. Number two, we are the continued work of Jesus in the world. You know, Gideon said, God, where are your deeds? And God said, am I not sending you? We see Jesus talking to his followers in John 14, 12. He says, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will even do even greater things because I am going to the Father. So Jesus is telling his early church, hey, church, I'm going to go away, but I'm equipped you, and you're going to do even greater things. You're going to carry on. You're going to continue the ministry that I started. It's not over. It's just begun. And then we see how in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, we see Paul teaching to the church. And he says, now, each, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. See, God hasn't just called us. He's equipped us, his people, the church, to continue the work that he began when he walked on this earth. See, we need to understand that Jesus is continuing through the church that he has equipped and filled through the Holy Spirit. We are God's plan. We are the called. We are the equipped. As we see in Corinthians, we see that we are equipped with spiritual gifts, that literally we have a gift from the Spirit of God that the Spirit uses to flow through us to do his work. And if you've been to the growth track, we dive into this a lot with, with developing your spiritual gifts. And, and the church has a diverse group of spiritual gifts. Some of the gifts of prayer, healing, hospitality, teaching, prophecy, shepherding, worship. God has equipped his church with these giftings to continue his work in this world. J.D. Greer says, we are the activity of God in our generation. How cool is that? We are the activity of God in our generation. How many times do our actions or thoughts ask the question that Gideon asked? God, why aren't you moving in my family? God, why aren't you moving in my workplace? God, why aren't you moving in my marriage or my high school or the college campus? God, why aren't you moving in our government when God is saying, hey, church, hey, people of God, that's why I put you there. That's why I put you in your school. That's why I put you in your family. Hey, dads, that's why I made you the dad of your kids. Hey, mom, that's why I wired you specifically to mother your kids. You're the conduit of my grace, and my love, of my Holy Spirit. Number three, the battle starts at home. 
See, before you can do battles with the enemies around us, before Gideon and the Israelites went out to take care of the Midianites and the Amalekites, God had some work to do within them. It began with the hearts of the Israelites. We see that, you know, when he sent, God sent the prophet. He sent the prophet to convict of sin. He sent the prophet to call them from remorse to repentance. See, remorse is just basically being sad that you got caught. Remorse is, is, is being upset about the consequences of sin, but not at the earthly consequences of sin. See, the people of Israel were crying out to God, not because they were worried about their relationship with God. They were crying out to God because they were scared, because they had nothing left. They weren't repentant. They were remorseful. So God sent a prophet to begin the act of repentance. Repent, re, to turn, penance to the higher things. To get them to turn from living to the things of this world to living for the things of God. They weren't grieved at their broken relationship with God. They were grieved because of the oppression that they were under. Then we see the battle move from their hearts to their homes. See, it was, it was I think, significant that the, the altar that was built to Baal was Gideon's dad's altar. His dad built it. That God wants us to, to move from remorse to repentance, but then he wants us to deal with the idols in our lives. See, if you have a repentant heart, then you're going to move to live for the higher things. The angel instructs Gideon to destroy the idols. To the, Israel, to the Israelites, they didn't say, you know, they didn't turn from God and just, you know, exclusively worship the idols and not believe in God anymore. No, if you look at the context, they formally still worshiped God. They formally worshiped God, but they surrounded themselves with their idols because they didn't trust God. See, if you look at the idols, you know, of, of, of Baal, they were all idols that had to do with provision and nature. You know, the God of the harvest, the God of the rain, the God of the sun, all these different things. And so basically they would worship God, but then just in case... They would have these idols. How many of us worship the one true God? We say that we trust him. We say that he's faithful. But just in case, we have idols. We don't tithe because we're afraid that we won't have enough. And so enough in our retirement or enough to pay the bills, all those things. So just in case, we, just, we decide not to follow God in that way. What battle needs to begin in our hearts? Where are we more remorseful than repentant? And then what would the outward response be to this repentance? Where are the idols in our lives? Where do we struggle to trust in the one true God? The battle starts at home. Four is this. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is following God in the midst of fear. See, God, God's answer to Gideon's fear was beautiful and simple. It was, I am with you. This is God's answer to Gideon and it's also to us. I am with you. When you get a bad diagnosis, hey, I'm with you. When you're starting a new job, hey, I'm with you. When your spouse has walked away, hey, I'm with you. When you're stepping out and telling your lifelong friend about Jesus for the first time, I'm with you. What would your life look like if you truly believed that God was with you when you were afraid? I think we can give it a lot of lip service. I think we say, oh, I believe that God's with me. He's always with me. But then our actions don't really reflect our words. If we really knew and really believed that God was with us, how would it change how we walked as believers? When you go through trials, difficulties, face situations and problems that would make you so afraid, God says, hey, you have no need to fear because I am with you. I am walking with you. We need to trust that God's presence is greater than the fears around us. I'm going to invite the band up as we close. The last is this. And this is like the icing on the cake. This is the cherry on top. The cross 
is our wet fleece. The cross is our wet fleece. See, sometimes we have this false way of getting confirmation by having these litmus tests for God. The wrong way to read this wet fleece moment is basically, all right, when I want you know, confirmation or direction from God, I'm basically saying, hey, God, if you do this, then I'll know that you, like, God, I'm going to twist your arm. If you do this, then I'll know that this is right. Like, God, if you, when I'm, if I win the lottery, then, like, I'll be generous. That's a little extreme. But, like, we've all, we've all probably had these moments. Like, God, if, if you, like I did in high school, God, like, if, if you want me to do this, then, then show me, like, if you want me to ask that girl out, then, then send me a sign. So, you know, like, we, I, don't, I don't know what, what that would look like. Um, this was a little different than what Gideon was doing. See, a lot of times we think that this was another situation of Gideon's mistrust. And that might be a little bit, you know, because we see that Gideon's a little embarrassed to ask these questions. But Gideon wasn't asking what decision to make. He already knew what he was supposed to do. He was asking for confirmation that God was with him and that God was in control. That God was different than the other idols of Baal. See, Gideon asked God to do something very, or the angel to do something very specific. He asked him to do something supernatural versus natural. See, all the, the idols that they would worship in this time were idols of nature. They would work through nature. The rain would come, but they didn't work out of the natural. And so God said, hey, you know, in the morning, I want to put out a fleece, and I want the dew, which is a natural thing that happens. You know, nature causes in the morning dew to come, especially, you know, when it's warmer. I want the dew to be just on the fleece and nowhere else. So God said, okay, I'm going to show you more of who I am, that I'm different than these other gods and these idols, that I have control over that, that I am sovereign. And so God did it. And, you know, again, I think Gideon was a little stubborn in this moment. He said, all right, God, that's cool, but now do it the other way. I want the fleece to be dry, and I want everything around it to be wet. See, God, again, was showing Gideon that he was different from all these other gods, that he was in control. For us, though, we have a different perspective than Gideon did because we have the cross. See, in the cross, we see that God is in control. We don't need a litmus test. We don't need a fleece because when we look to the cross, we see that God is in control of all that God is turning what other intended for evil into good in my life, into your life. And God has a great plan for us. The cross shows me and you that God is on our side. That he didn't turn his back from us in our wandering. This is what gives us courage, church. 1 John 4:18. there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. See, God's love is perfect. And this can be seen through the cross of Jesus Christ. His love is unending. God's love is never failing. It is sufficient. It is constant. It is sovereign. This is what gives us courage. God's good and perfect love. See, with God's perfect love, there's nothing to be afraid of. Psalm 56, 11, In God I trust and I am not afraid. What can man do to me? If you are afraid, I'm going to challenge you this morning. If you're afraid in situations, if you're afraid with a decision, if you're afraid, it's probably because you've lost touch with the fullness of his perfect love. We need to trust that he is enough, that he is sufficient. True courage comes from the presence and the promise, promises of God that were given to us through Christ Jesus. God is with us. You know, we're all familiar with the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations, you know, baptizing them and teaching them and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But right after the Great Commission is the Great Announcement. And it says, and, I, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
See, the great commission to go to the early church made by Jesus and Matthew, the great commission to go comes with a great announcement that I am with you. Not go figure out, have a great time, see you later. It's No, go and I am with you. Go and do this. You'll be persecuted. You'll be killed. I mean, many of the early followers were killed for Christ. It will be hard. You'll have difficult days. You will be asked to sacrifice. But go and know that I am with you. So let's come full circle this morning. Let's go back to the question that we started with. What is God calling you to do? How many of you have felt God calling you to something? Drawing you to something? Asking you to do something, to step out, but you didn't listen or obey because of fear? God is saying to you this morning, go, mighty man, mighty woman of valor, for I am with you. Go and take that step of faith and be generous. Begin that ministry journey, for I am with you. Tell your coworker about Jesus, for I am with you, and I'll give you the words to say. Give that courageous gift, for I am with you. Step out into the unknown, for I am with you. Take a risk for his kingdom, for I am with you. But for some of us, you might have forgotten who you are. You've been letting Satan win the war in your mind and speak lies about your destiny and your identity. See, God sees who you are in Christ, and he reminds you of this. And I feel like as we close this morning, God wants to remind you of who you are in Christ. Let's stand together. Because for many of us this morning, we've let Satan win that. We've let Satan define our identity, define who we are. But God sees you are. He calls you a saint. He says you are his ambassador. He says you are his son or his daughter. He says he will never leave or forsake you, that you are loved, that you are created in his image, that you are not worthless, but you have value. See, knowing our identity in Christ is so important in walking out our call. Virtues like courage flow from identity in Christ. Go, mighty man or woman of valor, for I am with you. Let's worship. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.